All right. Well, if you have your Bible, um, we're in Matthew 22, or free to use your worship guide. It's printed there. Let's start with the let's start with the text, and then we'll move on. Uh, Matthew 22, starting in 34, verse 34. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So today we're, gonna, we're starting a new sermon series, which is exciting. Um, calling it Purpose and Mission. And it's all about the pur- what is answering the questions, what is, what is the purpose of the Christian life, and what's the mission of the church? Or to put it all together into one giant question, what are we doing here? Uh, that's what we're going to spend nine weeks uh, answering. And Lord willing, I don't want to give you Charlie's answer. Uh, I want to give you what the scriptures, how the scriptures answer that question, which really is how Jesus answers that question. So this is the first week. We have from now until Easter. It's about nine weeks. So we're going to spend today and next week on what's the purpose of the Christian life. And then after that, we'll jump into what's the purpose of the church, the mission of the church, purpose and mission. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, the very beginning, the story of Genesis you know, one, two, and three. God creates the world. He puts Adam and Eve. They're his people in the garden. He gave them a purpose. And he gave them a mission. He gave them meaning. And he gave them something to do. But Adam and Eve ignored that purpose. And they cast off that mission. And they decided instead of living into God's purpose for their life and living according to the mission he had given them, they decided to live unto themselves, and the purpose and the mission were abandoned and almost lost, certainly lost to them. You know, the Bible is the story of how God is restoring purpose and mission to his people, uh, he, he restores purpose and mission to his people through his man, Jesus Christ. And he does that for the life of the world. What's the Bible about? The Bible is about God restoring his purpose and mission to his people through his man, Jesus Christ, for the life of the whole world. That's what the Bible's about. So it's really important for us as a church to take time to stop and think about these things. 
because of Jesus, we can pursue purpose and mission without fear. Because of Jesus, we can actually accomplish things. Uh, we can live toward the world being a better place. It's important for us to remember, though, that like Adam, we all carry around these private notions of what our, the meaning of our life is and what the mission of our church should be. But God has fixed those things from the very beginning, giving them to Adam, uh, and then since then preserving them and his people, Israel, until his man, Jesus Christ, came to uh, secure the end of the mission, to make the mission accomplished, even though we're still living into it. It's kind of mysterious. Jesus came to embody our purpose and to live it out so that we can join him in that. So today, as a church, we're starting to talk about these things. Now, um, why are we doing this? Charlie, you know, I think if we went around and surveyed everybody, we might give different answers as to what our purpose and mission is, but really we'd all be kind of saying the same thing. Can't we just do that thing, you know, that where you get up and preach through books of the Bible verse by verse, we sing songs and try to be friends with each other and just get on with it? Why do we have to, why do we have to stop and study a, a topic uh, and why do we have to stop and do this sort of reassessment? Are you trying to change everything? Are we not the church we used to be? <laughs> These kinds of questions all, very often in the lives of churches come up when a new pastor stands up in front and says, I'm going to tell you what the mission of the church is, what our purpose is. It's, oh, great, here we go. We're going to do some new thing. Well, I want to assure you guys that that's, that's not my intention here. My intention here is not to tell you that Charlie brand of doing ministry together. My intention is to submit to God's word and to, alongside each one of us, do a, do a kind of retrieval job, a recovery of what it is that the church is supposed to be all about. So here's a good illustration that I think is helpful. Uh, next week is the Super Bowl. Uh, it happens during our service, so I hope you come to church. <laughs> uh, but it is the Super Bowl football. So football analogy because the Super Bowl. This is helpful. Football is a game with a purpose. There is a purpose to the game. It's fixed. The purpose of football is to win. That's what the game is all about. Maybe in you know peewee rec sports, the purpose is to have fun. Maybe in high school sports, the purpose is to grow and develop, but at least in pro football, the purpose is to win. That's the purpose. That's what the game's about. One thing, above all, winning. Football, each team also has a particular mission, and that mission works toward the purpose. So in order to win, each team, the mission is to move the ball down the field to score more points in doing so than the other team. Or maybe we should include defense. The, purpose, the mission of a football team is to move the ball down the field and stop the other team from doing the same thing so that you would fulfill the purpose, score more points, and win. Now, if we take the purpose away, or we forget it, winning. If winning is no longer important, at least in pro football, and we sort of get soft on the mission. 
then a team could go out there and throw the ball around and run in circles and drink Gatorade, you know, and take hits and be tackled all day long without actually playing football. Do you see it? We as a church, we can, I can get up here and preach sermons, we can sing songs, we can be friends with each other, we can do all this stuff, but if we lose our purpose and we forget about our mission, we're not really playing football. We're not really doing church. So, I want to spend some time with this. Uh, we could have done one week on the purpose and mission, or, what, or maybe two weeks, purpose and mission, but I want to spend real time. So what we're going to do over these nine weeks, we're going to focus in on really three major scripture passages. The one that we just read, Matthew 22, which gives the purpose for our lives as Christians. And then we're going to spend about uh, six weeks in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We're going to go through it real slow, like word by word. It's called the Great Commission, and that's an outline of the mission of the church. It comes straight from Jesus. And then we're going to spend one week looking at Revelation 21, which is a picture of what it's all going to be like at the very end, when the purpose is uh, at least fulfilled on this side of eternity, and when the mission is accomplished, what it's going to be like. Okay? All right. Let's pray, and then let's dive into this passage asking the question, what's the purpose of life? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for telling us what you're about, not keeping uh, things as important as why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing uh, secrets. Thanks for not keeping that secret. It's readily available. Um, so I pray that we would be able to really see our purpose, really see our mission, and be able to embrace these things with all of our hearts. Lord, our church, uh, we're, in a, we're, in a whole, we're in a brand new season. Um, I'm six months in. Uh, we're do, trying to do this together. Uh, and we live in a hard city sometimes to be a Christian. And this is not demographically a place where Churches just naturally grow on their own because it's part of the culture. So, Lord, there's a, this is, really feels like the time that we really need to hear from you about these things. And I, and I pray we would. Would you speak to us through your word? Illuminate it in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see Jesus, the King, to trust him. It's in his name. Amen. All right. Matthew 22, 34. Through 40. We have already read it, but we're going to read it again a little slower, um, part by part. Um, the context for this passage is what we would call today Easter week. This is, Jesus is near the end of his, you know, three-year uh, ministry leading up to his death and resurrection. He's, he's nearing the end. He, he uh, on Sunday, he rode into the city on a donkey in what we know as the triumphal entry. He wrote in, I will celebrate this on Palm Sunday, he wrote in, basically writing in as king of the city. And people are yelling, Hosanna, they're throwing, you know, flowers and putting their coats down. He's riding in to take the throne. And it's a symbolic thing, but that's what's happening. And then at the end of the week is when he is arrested and goes to the cross and he's crucified. 
And he's crucified under the legal charge of his claim to be king of the Jews. So at the beginning of the week, he rides into town as the king. Near the end of the week, he's crucified as the king. And on the next Sunday, he raises from the dead, proving his authentic throne. So Easter week, so it's really like king week. Jesus rides in to take the kingdom. He's crucified, which, which is actually an ultimate reality when he actually took a hold of it. Did you know that's when Jesus took a hold of his throne? Was at the cross? And then he rose from the dead, proving his power, proving his right to rule. So it's King Week, which is also Confrontation Week, because we see that between Palm Sunday and the cross on that Friday, what Jesus does in Jerusalem in these chapters 21, you know, 20, yeah, 21, 22, uh, what Jesus does is he spends time in confrontational interactions with the other people in Jerusalem who sort of claimed the right to be the leaders. So he goes into the temple and he clears the temple of all the money changers. And that's like a way of saying the economy no longer rules here. And then he gives a lesson on, somebody says, should we pay taxes? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And that's his way of saying, look, Caesar's not actually in charge here. And then he has this confrontation with a group called the Sadducees, which was a group of religious elites who were in control of the temple system. And they were allied with Rome's, which means they were hated by a lot of the people. And they sort of had a academic theology that wasn't totally orthodox. Um, and there is a confrontation where Jesus basically openly rebukes them for their bad theology. And so there's that. He, the, the religious elites who controlled the, the religious practice. And then after that, he has this confrontation with the Pharisees, which is a group of religious elites who weren't part of really the establishment as much as the Sadducees, but they were a populist movement. Now, the Pharisees were, I think we've talked about this before, the Pharisees, often we paint them as the bad guys in the New Testament, and there's some truth to that, but really these, these were mostly what we would call good people. These were people who loved the Bible. These are people who wanted to follow God. These are people who were concerned about the religious establishment and its corruption. They, they wanted to do good things. Now, the Pharisees were the one thing that they were really passionate above everything else was God's law. These were, that was their thing, following the law, understanding the law, teaching the law. The Pharisees believed, and rightly so, that God's law is where God has, well, let me put it this way. The Pharisees believed that if you wanted to know God, study his law. If you want to know what his will, God's will is for your life, study his law. If you want to know the kinds of things God cares about, study his law. All of these things are true. If you want to know what God's heart looks like, open your Bible to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 and read the Ten Commandments. Those are the things that God cares about. Do you want to know how God thinks about equity and justice? Open your Bible to Exodus, also to Leviticus, and read the laws about how we're supposed to treat people who uh, uh, 
treat the poor or the immigrant or the widow or the disenfranchised. God reveals himself in his law. The Pharisees knew that, and that's a good thing. But the Pharisees got so focused on it that they started missing the big idea of what the law was really all about. Here's an example. They believed the law, they, they really cared about it, and they did a thing where they took the laws that are actually in the Bible, the Old Testament, so the, the Torah, and they numbered them. So we have numbers in the Ten Commandments, but they, they went beyond that numbered all the laws. And then they added more laws, you know, just in case there wasn't enough. And altogether, they ended up with like 613 laws. And a good Pharisee would have these memorized. Uh, 248 of them were things that they were supposed to do, and 365 of them were things that they were not supposed to do. So both positive and negatively articulated laws. And they had all these rattling around in their head, but because there's so many of them, 613, various Pharisee groups were, they had a thing where they were searching for, if, if there was one law above all else, if there's a summary statement, if we could sum up the whole law in one principle, what would it be? And that's noble because it's easier to memorize one thing than to memorize 613 things, right? So they had this thing. What's, what's the greatest law? How do you summarize this whole thing? The problem is, is within the different Pharisee schools, they started coming up with different answers. So in one major Pharisee school, the Hillel, the Hillel school, following after Rabbi Hillel, which was a little bit before Jesus, Rabbi Hillel said that the golden rule is the most important thing. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Except the way he articulated it, it's kind of fun. He says, the thing that you hate, don't do that to other people. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's, so he said that's the most important thing. Uh, and that, a lot of people believe that. Uh, behavior. Most important thing about God's law is God wants you to act right. Well, there were other Pharisees that said, no, 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 that's, that's off. That's, it's not about whether or not you act right. Um, Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's the greatest law. That's the summary statement. It's not, the, the big idea is not behavior. The big idea is reverence and tribute, paying homage to God. And another group of Pharisees around Jesus' day, they came along and they said, guys, 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 it's not about the golden rule. It's not about reverence. It's, you guys just don't get it. Really, this is about faith. <laughs> And that's, that's noble. They, they, they quoted from Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall live by faith. In these different schools, they, there was this ongoing debate. If they had Twitter, it would be on Twitter. If they had blogs, there would be bloggers, like the Hillel blogger would be in a blog war with the faith guy, kind of like we do today. Um, so it's no surprise that Jesus, in Confrontation Week, he has his confrontation with the temple elite. He has his confrontation with Caesar. He has his confrontation all these different groups. Now it's Pharisee confrontation time. And a Pharisee comes up, a lawyer, a student of the law, and he asks, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one thing? He's asking a question that was debated widely in the blogosphere. He's asking the big Twitter question. Whose team is Jesus on? Or does he have a new idea? What's Jesus' big thing? And this is Jesus' response. Well, let's just, we'll go back, uh, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. 
They wanted them a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher. Oh, to test him. So they had something that they wanted him to say. Interesting. Asked him a question to test him. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Okay, we've explained that far. And this is what Jesus says. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he throws in a bonus. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Mark's account of this, we just read from Matthew. If you read this in Mark, the, the lawyer says, that's right. So apparently Jesus gave the answer that the guys were looking for, which that's nice. Jesus does clarify in Mark. I still don't think you get it. But Jesus is giving one of the answers that floated around in the rabbinical school. And Jesus was saying, that's my answer. And he quotes this from Deuteronomy 6, which we read earlier. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's what we call the Shema. That's kind of like the Apostles' Creed of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. So Jesus says to the guy, to the people, the correct answer, the greatest command in all the law is Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he throws in, and the second, and the, you know, it's almost like he's saying, just in case you want to know, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, disclaimer, we're going to jump deep into love your neighbor as yourself next week. Uh, but this week we'll focus on what the first part. But I just want to say that the way Jesus presents these, they're not really separate things. They go together. What Jesus is saying is the Deuteronomy 6 thing, love the Lord your God, heart, soul, uh, all that stuff. And the way that that works out in your life, the way you treat other people, it's all connected. This is, he's confronting this Pharisee. Hey guys, this is not an academic exercise. This is not something that's supposed to live in your head. This is supposed, it's going to affect your life and affect the way you treat other people. He also does this other thing. It's kind of, he, he sneaks this in and it's easy to miss. In Deuteronomy it says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might... But here in Matthew's account, Jesus says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. What's interesting is if you read it from Mark, a different account of the same event, Mark says that Jesus said, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, might. So, from what we could tell, Jesus added mind. Now, this is a... Uh, you know, we talk about sometimes how we want to read the Bible not through our own 21st century Western cultural lens, but we want to read it uh, as best we can through how first century, at least when this was written, how those readers would have read this. And this is a great example of doing that. In our culture today, when you quote somebody or quote something, it's really important that you quote it as word for word as possible. In first century Judaism, the rules, the cultural rules about quoting were a little bit different. It was more about quoting the central idea and the central message of the thing. 
So when Jesus adds mind, he's not changing the meaning of the Deuteronomy 6 verse. He's clarifying its true meaning. Let me show you. With all your heart. Uh, in the early Jewish mind, heart was, heart was the seat of the intellect. For us, the heart is the seat of the passions. But early Judaism... Uh, the seat of the intellect. One commentator said it's the hub of the wheel that makes the whole person. Uh, in the Jewish mind, early on, the heart was, uh, that's, that's, that's where you make your deepest decisions. So with all your heart, seat of your intellect, with all your soul, in the early Jewish mind, the soul was your body, your physical body, animated by the breath of life. So that's a whole person thing. In our culture, your soul is your inner, private, spiritual self. Uh, forget about that. Early Judaism, your soul is like, that would us be like saying, like, like your em embodied, holistic self. That's the soul. And with all your might, that's strength, right? So Jesus adds mind. Uh, now, we don't really know exactly why he did that. Maybe he was being uh, aware that they maybe were... Uh, Greeks around, or maybe a westernized uh, Greek-thinking people around him. He is talking to Pharisees, so I don't know. I, I think what he's doing is I think he's doubling down on this idea of, I think what he's trying to tell the Pharisees is, don't get caught up in the details here. We can go down the rabbit hole of what does it mean to love God with the seat of your intellect and separate that from loving God with your spiritual and physical self. And we can separate that from loving God strong with strength. Uh, we, can, we can go in there. We can try to parse these things out and try to categorize and separate how the love of God is supposed to affect you. And I believe that Jesus throws mind in just to sort of disrupt that process. Because in the end, what we have here from Jesus, the way Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, the big picture we're left with is not something that we're supposed to take the love of God and then consider it in these different compartments of our life or figure out what it looks like in different rooms in the house, which is our whole person. What Jesus is saying here is love God with everything that you are in every single way with your whole self comprehensively. You see that? The Pharisees who were so used to taking the scriptures and reducing them by their uh, many times honorable but hermeneutical process. He's challenging that. Guys, don't overly religious this thing and then carry it away in your pocket because you feel not because you're a religious leader. Don't do that. This is a big thing. This is bigger than you. Love God with everything that you are. I like the way that, well, I just quoted. See, we got to quote right. We got to quote correctly. Um, Stu Weber was a guy who pastored Good Shepherd Community Church in Sandy, Oregon for years and years. And he wrote something on this, and I love what he says. He says that Jesus, what Jesus meant here was love God with everything you are in every way possible. That's what Jesus was saying. So, according to Jesus, what's the purpose of the Christian life? According to Jesus, why are we here? 
According to Jesus, what's, what winning the game is to football, what's that thing to being a human person? Well, according to Jesus, it's loving God with everything you are in every way possible. Jesus takes God's entire law and sums it all up in one idea, loving God in a way that's bigger than you. So, love, loving God. You know, the Pharisees, I don't want to leave them alone just yet because I think that in Jesus' confrontation with them is where we're going to find Jesus' confrontation with us. You know, we get to this place. It all lands with love God. And it's so easy, I think, for us, just we're Christians, we're pro-God-loving, to go, yeah, totally. I mean, look, we rent a space where it says love on the side. This, we affirm this. This is good. This is, yeah, we're God-loving people. Good job, Jesus. And you know what? I kind of knew what it was going to be. It's easy for us to do that. But think about Jesus, how he's confronting the Pharisees here. The Pharisees knew a lot about God. They were theologians. They dedicated their lives to having good theology. But Jesus is showing them that even with good theology, they still don't know God. The Pharisees were very moral. The best they knew how, they tried every way possible to follow God's moral law. But Jesus is showing them that you, but as moral as you try to be, you still aren't obeying him. The Pharisees were very religious. They were very pious. But Jesus is showing them that he is, as religious as they are, they're still not really glorifying God. And they were very passionate. They, you read the New Testament. These are passionate people. But Jesus is showing them here that they still don't really enjoy God. In one of our catechisms, the Westminster, both the longer and the shorter Westminster catechisms, Ask, what is the chief end of man? This is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In our catechism for this week, in case you haven't read it yet, it says something similar. It says, how can we glorify God? It says, we glorify God by enjoying him, by loving him, trusting him, and obeying his will, commands, and his law. Here's the big idea. Loving God is way more comprehensive than we would like to think it is. And it's the meaning of everything that we do. It's the ground floor. It doesn't get any more basic than loving God. However, the more we grow in our faith, the more we grow in our ability to worship, the more we grow in our ability to be moral, the more we grow in our ability to do good things in the city, we never master loving God. And Jesus looks at the the religious elites, not the ones who were in power, but the ones who were loved by the people, the ones who had captivated the heart of faithful Israel. He looks at them and he basically says, guys, you still don't understand. Love God with everything, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. I, 
here in the context of confrontation week for Jesus, confronting the Pharisees with this sort of big vision for the purpose of life. It, it's so simple that uh, a young child can understand it, but it's so big and complicated that the greatest and most popular religious scholars of the day are taken back by it. That should confront us today. This should confront us at hope. Folks, in our tradition, we dedicate ourselves to good theology. I am very proud of that, and that's why many of us, that's one of the reasons why many of us are here. In our tradition, we don't play fast and loose with theology. I think that's really good. Uh, we dedicate ourselves to being moral. We care about what's right and wrong. We think through these things. I, there was just a, uh, in our Presbytery meeting for the Pacific Northwest this last week that Scott and I wouldn't be a part of. We had a big debate about a particular nuance of a question of morality. We care about these things. We care about piety. We know that when we worship, we should be reverent. We know that we should give our best to God. We know that we should try really hard to do uh, the religious life the best we can. We want to be passionate people. We really want to make friends. We try to sing with all of our heart. But none of that stuff matters if we are not totally intoxicated and obsessed with loving God. If loving God does not overwhelm every fiber of our being. Like when a house is on fire, smoke fills every single room. Is loving God filling our heart? It's the most important thing. As we talk about the mission and what we're going to do and we challenge each other and we think about how to apply the mission of the church and all these things, none of it matters if, if every single bit of it is not covered and drenched with love for God. 1 Corinthians 13 one through three says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but I, and I have all the faith and I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, we're like four minutes over time. So... Uh, if I can go seven minutes over time, I'd like to just answer one quick little question that might be important. Um, how do we get love for God and how do we keep it? Because I think we know how important it is. But how do we get a hold of that filling our entire being intoxicated with love for God kind of thing? How do we do that? Well, there's two Bible verses that come to mind that we really need to remember. The first one is 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. That's key. Our love for God is not something that we come up with and muster up. It's a response to his love for us. Here's the second thing. 1 John 4, uh, 9. says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We love God because he first loved us. 
And the love that he first loved us with is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. John 3.16, if you translate it as literally, as and most woodenly literally as possible in the Greek, it goes like this. This is how God loved the world. He sent his unique son so that the believing ones would not perish but have everlasting life. So here's the thing. The big vision for the intoxicating, room-filling, room filling, everything love of God that drives everything we do, where do we find it? Well, in our response to God's love for us that's embodied in Jesus Christ. Here's why this story of Jesus with the Pharisees is so wild. It's because he was literally standing in front of them, telling them the truth. And they still didn't get it. So, folks, as we move through this, I'll start now. I want to ask, do you love God? Do you? Every step of the way in our life as a church, if we need to, starting now, every single thing we do we're going to do with both hands clinging to Jesus, the love of God. Because that's where our love for God comes from. And without that, we have nothing. Let's pray.